teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education, is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. I think that this is a business. There are those who are not just in Uganda, but various different countries in, in, in Africa and in India too, who have realized that there is big, big money in convincing people that sacrificing a child will make them rich. Children are murdered for money. Today is really quite an impactful and emotional episode, so I do warn you that we talk about some really gruesome things, and it's up to you whether you want to hear about that on this fine sunny day or grisly grey day or night or wherever you are, however it is. Annie Iqba is a hero to me because she fought to end child sacrifice in Uganda. That's what we're talking about today. I didn't know the practice even took place until I stumbled upon Annie's work and invited her on the podcast. For various reasons, it ended up taking a few months to get this out there but it's such an important subject that I really did want to cover it and I'm glad that I've managed to get this out on the podcast. Annie is a freelance TV editor and she was the instigator of the bill to change things in Uganda after having experiences there that alerted her to the way that families and certain rogue individuals were going about sacrificing children. Go to childrenontheedge.org to read more about the inside story of their five-year fight, seven years for Annie in total, to change the law. Annie Iqba is a wonderful speaker, very passionate about her work, and she's been a joy to work with. You can watch a video she did about this subject on Lad Bible's YouTube channel as well. Episodes are coming up on the podcast with Holly Laurent to talk about her film work and life growing up evangelical, the second part to the Robbie Williams episode, and an interview with Australian female psychopath Kanika Batra. But now, you're on the edge of child sacrifice in Uganda with Annie Ikba. Hi, welcome on the edge, Annie Iqba. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very, very happy to be here, finally. Yeah, we've been trying for a while, haven't we? It's really nice to get you here. And your equipment's great. Everything's great. I'm very happy. Tell me a bit about your background and the productions you've worked on over the years. Yeah, so I am a freelance video editor. I work mainly in sort of reality, entertainment. Um, I think what most people call trash, trash TV, I guess. Um I but I love it. Uh, love Island. Uh, I've worked on Strictly, Come Dancing, I'm a Celeb, Get Me Out of Here, uh, Made in Chelsea, Towie, Too Hot to Handle, just finished that. That was really good. Um, so yeah, I work on a broad, broad range of, of shows, but all se- seemingly in the same sort of genre. But um, I very much enjoy my job, yeah. In, in general, how much do you sort of push them around let's say love island how much are they sort of pushed to have certain conversations obviously not going to answer that 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> they aren't. Um, it's reality. It's sort of, you know, obviously within the spectrum of, um, you know, it's a television show, right? So um, being very, very careful not to say something that's going to make sure I'm never hired again. Um, <clears throat> it's unscripted. It really is unscripted. I think there's like this massive misconception that Made in Chelsea, The Only Way is Essex, they're given this kind of script before um, before they're filmed and they are not. They really are not. Fair enough. And you're right. I don't want to, I don't want to prod you on that because I don't want to get you in trouble. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. But this is the thing. So, I mean, you, you, it's, it's fairly, um, reality show, fairly superficial, and, but a lot of us love it and I enjoy watching it myself. And you do learn a bit about society and things. But how did you get involved in the kind of activism that you've, you've been doing that we're going to talk about today? Uh, well, do you know what? I don't, there's this thing about the word activism that just sounds a bit, um, like, I want to say Ponzi, but I don't, I don't, I, it sounds like activism is kind of like saved for the middle class, really posh loaded kids who are rebelling against their really loaded parents. And I'm just not that at all. So I would not consider myself an activist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not, it's not that at all. We need another word. We need, yeah. I don't know. What would you, what would you suggest? Um, impactful um, stuff. Um, I don't know. I think... I think it got to a point where I was I was working and you know enjoying my job but feeling a little bit kind of like mm, there could be something else kind of out there and I wanted a bit of a change and I uh reached out to a lady who ran a baby's home in Uganda and she sort of looked often looked for and needed TV people to go over there and shoot films and edit them and stuff and I very quickly agreed and you know, um, went to Uganda. I think it was only supposed to be about three months and they ended up staying six or seven in the first, in the first instance. And, um, at this baby's home, which is a little bit like it's somewhere in between a baby's home and a rescue center. There are children there from the ages of like zero to 11, 12, um, who have been sort of either found abandoned or rescued from their homes. Um, bought to this baby's home and, you know, they try and basically find Ugandan families to adopt these kids. And <clears throat> there was one girl there who um, had, I was told, survived child sacrifice. And yeah, it was through her and the organization that I, I learned I learned quite a lot about what this practice is and the effects it's had on, on the country. Was that a shock for you to learn about? I mean, did you know that that existed? Not specifically child sacrifice. I knew that you know, there was such things as the occult and I knew about witchcraft through my dad, who's Nigerian, but I had, I hadn't ever heard about like sacrifice. And obviously like there are sacrifices that are made, but it's always to do with animals and chickens and, um, goats, um, which is very, very common, but never had I heard of, of, of humans being sacrificed and certainly not children. Yeah. It's, it's really quite unnerving and, and scary. I thought the same as you. And I thought it was maybe like, I don't know, an old wives tale, or maybe even like a xenophobic thing about, oh, these other countries where that happens. I suppose it's, it must, is it em embarrassing for a lot of people from those countries that this goes on? Are, are, are people in, in those, in, in these countries, in the cities, are they aware of this happening? Do you know what? It's, I wouldn't say embarrassed. I think there's, there's obviously a lot of shame, right? Um, there's a lot of shame. I think people do realize it's happening. Um, you can't not. However, it's not so much a taboo subject, right? 
it's people aren't open about it unless you really ask the questions. And I found when I heard about this and I went researching, um, people were really kind of hesitant at first to talk about it, but it only took a little bit of digging and scratching the surface and they would just unearth all of these awful stories that they were so obviously keen to talk about and needed for themselves, you know, to, to explain to someone, even though I was a foreigner, what was happening in their country, because it felt to me as though they'd never been asked. Um, yet they really wanted to communicate this horror that was happening all around them. So, um, do people know about it? Yes. Um, people are willing to talk about it, but you've just got to ask questions and ask the right questions. Is it a horror for everyone? Because I guess some of these people are carrying out the practice. So for those people, have, did you speak to any of those people and were they sort of defending the practice? No, of course, like no one would out, like outright come out and say that they had. Um, however, I, I made like a, a little documentary about it more, as much for me really to sort of help document what I was hearing, but also because at one point I wanted to take it to the government and just say, look, this is what's happening. Um, and I met, you know, survivors of child sacrifice. I met parents who'd lost their children. I interviewed the police, the judiciary, but I also, um, I also interviewed this witch doctor who had very recently given up the practice. I didn't and could not ask him outright if he had, if he had, you know, um, was involved in sacrificing children, but there was an air about him that he had done things that he was not proud of. So, uh, yeah, I kind of got close. I met this one woman. In fact, yes, I met this one woman. Um, I won't say where, and she, um, did actually admit to sacrificing children. I had completely forgotten about this. Um, I was not actually traveling. I wasn't, I wasn't actually specifically working on this side of, um, you know, on, on researching, researching child sacrifice at all. I met her completely by chance and I got talking about what I was doing. And she said that her family had, um, forced her, introduced her to the occult and she had been sort of, um, born into this, um, idea that you know, when you sacrifice children, it will lead to riches and prosperity. And uh, she was forced to carry out these things. And she was deeply, deeply ashamed. Um, the conversation lasted, couldn't have lasted more than five minutes. And she was just desperate to get out of her situation. I don't know if she was continuing, you know, if she was still doing it then. But um, yeah, I'd, it's so weird. I'd completely forgotten about that. And it's something that I, I wish I'd remembered a long time ago, because yeah, I don't know, perhaps I could have I probably would have behaved a bit differently. I don't know, weirdly. Um, How so? Well, I was so wrapped up in like, just trying to sort of get the message out there that this exists. But actually, weirdly, there are people who clearly are involved in this who are desperate to get out. Um, it probably wasn't a fight that I was able to take on at the time. But in hindsight, I wish I paid a bit more attention to that. And there's no way in hell I'll be able to find her now. Yeah, well, hindsight, it's one of those things as a journalist, isn't it? It's impossible. There's so many leads, aren't there? And you just can't possibly yeah. remember all of them and, you know. Yeah. You spoke of, of parents, um, you know, losing their children. I mean, so so would it, is it often that one sacrifices one's own children or that they're sort of taken from, from the parents? Both. Um, so children, are, it's easier to sacrifice your own ch children for um accessibility 
um, reasons. Um, and also there is a myth that when you sacrifice your own child, your own blood, um, it, uh, it's th whatever you're trying to do is more likely to work. Um, because it's a, you know, effectively a bigger sacrifice, but more often than not, um, children are abducted on their way to school, um, or when they're sort of working in the fields, especially. So, um, yeah, either, either one of those. It must be terrifying, um, for the families. And, but I mean, we do a lot on this podcast. I'm always talking about, you know, cults and extreme ideologies and that, you know, the banality of evil, how, how, these beliefs can make even good people do awful, awful things. Do you think these people, when they're sacrificing their children, I mean, they must, firstly, they, they really believe that it's going to bring good things. Do they have, do you know of any beliefs they have about the child itself? Like, okay, now my child's going to go to heaven. No. And I haven't, I haven't ever heard of that. No. Um, no. Why? Have, have you? No, it's just because it's so, it's so, difficult to imagine a parent sacrificing their own child without unless there was a reason like okay but uh, they're going to go to heaven so it's okay well i i can tell you why i think it's not just i think it's really easy to point the finger and say you're so fucking evil you're you've done this to your child and absolutely i am not condoning it one bit but there are you know there's there's two ends of this spectrum here you've got the rich people who are sacrificing children to kind of maintain their wealth. And then you've got the really, really poor, impoverished, desperate people who are sacrificing children, their own children, to emerge from that poverty because they genuinely feel as though there is no other way. Um, they've been brainwashed, brain brainwashed by their community, brainwashed by the witch doctor that they're consulting. Um, so they absolutely genuinely believe that this will help them emerge from their poverty. Do, do you get the impression that even it's a really hard decision for them to make? Naturally, yeah. And, and I suppose it's a difficult question, but I mean, do you, do you have an impression of how they t typically go about sacrificing children? Uh, so they, I mean, yeah, they, obviously they, they abduct the child, um, they obtain the child, and um, often they use chloroform. Uh, to knock the child out, um, but <clears throat> they they sacrifice the child, i.e. remove organs and cut the child um, and take what they need, often while the child is alive um, and conscious. So whether they, uh, and chloroform is not like easy, readily available um, in Uganda. So yeah, children are held down, you know, I, yeah, you can imagine it. Um, and you know, it's obviously um, incredibly harrowing uh, uh, because there are, there are those who have survived and can, can tell you what happened to them. They remember the pain and uh, they remember and can identify uh, the, the perpetrators and their attackers. So, uh, so yeah, what tradition, well, what, what normally happens is that they, they take what they need from the child um, and it's not normally the witch doctor who does this, uh, who does the cutting. Um, it's someone that they have employed. Um, and then they then go back to the witch doctor with the body parts and they are mixed in with ritual medicine by the witch doctor. Uh, and, you know, a ritual is, is, is um, made uh, to the 
to the ancestors who have demanded this and um and yeah that's that's the general kind of process what did it make you feel like um learning about this for the first time oh dirty like the fact that i'd been like blissfully walking around um and living my life and not having a clue that this happened all at the time um was just i just felt really ashamed and i think maybe that's why i um just put so much of myself into doing anything that i could to to make some sort of difference and impact um because i just felt so much guilt weirdly and also i had this you know complete i was completely inspired by this little girl um and felt that i just had this kind of real kinship to her i was seeing her every day and i just wanted to do her proud and do every other child um proud who had who had suffered at the hands of this practice and, and this was this was a survivor um mm. what was her story so she so when sacrifices are often made um during election times um to help bring good luck they're often um you'll often find the bodies of children under construction sites to bless a building mall uh, apartment building and this little girl uh had been taken to a construction site um a witch doctor had laid her down and just sprinkled herbs all around her and all over her body and luckily a security guard had seen what was going on stopped it and called the baby's home where i was working and um and yeah she was she was brought to the the baby's home but she i think was one of the cases where it was the parents who had ordered that because there was a nationwide appeal for her parents uh, to you know does anybody know this girl her picture was everywhere all over the news and newspapers and nobody came forward and we suspected that her parents could have been involved in in that but she was she yeah, she uh, it was awful she was really quite a, sh- a shell of a human being when i met her she was just terrified and visibly traumatized and you know i just i just loved her instantly and i just wanted to learn about the practice that nearly killed her and yeah we just got really really close and i'm still in touch with her now did she start to recover upon being with you and and back to sort of normal life yeah yeah she did yeah very like gradually what's what's she up to now so she's now um living with um a teacher who's fantastic um she's got two brothers uh living in a really nice um house in a village um surrounded by like pigs and sheep and not sheep sorry pigs and chicken and mango trees she's flourishing i'm going to see her next month oh wow she must love you though she must she must like see you as i mean how old is she now uh well we think that she was like obviously she didn't come with like documentation right but i think we think that she's probably about 10 now or 9 she just makes it out every year she's like oh, i think i'm 7 i'm 8 i'm 9 cuz yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but her birthday's the 1st of july so i think um her her parents picked that as it's uh i don't know easy middle of the year and and i suppose that security guard saved her life as well yeah absolutely um and like about a year after i sort of started digging around and wanted to learn a bit more about her case and i went to the 
police station where uh, the case was reported and they had lost they had lost the the case files um so i couldn't there's nothing exists on on who found her um or anything because that's what i wanted to do next what do you think that might mean that they've lost them um i think it can mean lots of lots of things um lots of cases go missing um and uh to be honest with you i i i can't say and i wouldn't like to speculate a few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education is it's essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. What's um, Kampala like? And is that, is that where this is mostly going on or is it the, the rest of Uganda? Uh, it happens 
all over. Normally in the, the villages, um, there's particular districts where it's particularly prevalent, but it also happens in Kampala. But on the whole, Kampala is a wonderful, wonderful city. Um, when I first got there, I just instantly felt at home. Like the people are genuinely the, the nicest people, the most welcoming. And I think that was really important doing the kind of work that I was doing that I felt like I had a, you know, a second home in a way. Um, and I felt for the most part safe there. Um, but it's really cool. The nightlife is amazing. Um, <laughs> really good. Uh, there are amazing restaurants. You should go. I think you would enjoy it. We can uh, party there together. I'd love to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> it's Man. honestly, it's so there's, good. There's so many places to see. I've only ever been to South Africa in, in Africa. I did a, a rugby tour when I was younger, but that was beautiful. What a beautiful country. I suppose every country's beautiful, isn't it? There's not, I don't know. I don't know that there's a country that's not beautiful. I don't think I've been to enough places to answer that. Do you know? Um, but <laughs> but everyone must have its beauty. Yeah, exactly. And Kampala, Uganda has it in abundance, really. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and I've just, you know, I felt like I had um, really understood the rhythm of the country. I'd been there on and off for nearly eight years. And my dad, who's Nigerian, he probably wouldn't like to hear this, but I felt, I feel more Ugandan <laughs> than I do <laughs> Nigerian. <laughs> Don't I tell just, him that. I know. No, let's keep that between us. Um, I just, yeah, even though the bill's like passed, it's now a law, um, I just can't help but go back. And obviously I'm still involved, not as much as I was, but um, there's just something about that country that just keeps pulling me back. I want to go with you there, but it's let's just go. expensive probably, isn't it? Not really. Get on Skyscanner. Um, yeah? Yeah. Are we on. talking hundreds or over a thousand? No, it's not over that. It's not Jamaica. Come on. Um, it's probably, I think I paid like 650, something like that. And they have gone up actually. They used to only be about 450 only, but yeah. Uganda tourist board should be paying us for this, shouldn't they? Do you <laughs> We're sort of giving them a bit of PR. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not all the bad stuff we're talking about as well, but that's why I'm happy that you've, you've talked. It kind of balances it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy you've talked about how nice people are there as, as well because I, I the last thing I would want is for people to hear this and go what's this place uh, Kampala Uganda oh horrible because every society has awful awful things in it you know that's and it's I imagine it's a rarity right what the the child sacrifice stuff there um uh depends who you ask um but generally speaking it's a um I can't bloody well call it a safe country now can I <laughs> because if you're if you're a child, then you're yeah, then it's not um, all of the time, depending on where you are. Um, but there's a lot to see, a lot to do, and it's a wonderful, affordable, beautiful city, Kampala. And I encourage anyone to go. I thought of another word instead of activism, but I don't know. I don't know if this sounds quasi-religious though. But is this has this become a calling for you? Uh, I think it was. It has to have been right. Like I just shut down everything else in my life and was just like hell for leather. Um, went for this and I have definitely described this in the past as my calling just because I was a bit wayward before I knew like the only two things I think I've been sure about uh, in my life are the fact that I wanted to get into tv I wanted to be a video editor and I wanted to pursue this and yeah I just felt like both of those I wouldn't say telly is my calling but it was certainly something that I was hell-bent on doing and this has been no different would you would you write a book about this because i can see it being turned into a movie or something particularly about your impact and, and what you did there don't know 
feels a bit something to think about. wanky um considering that doesn't it <laughs> can you Ooh. imagine what how would you answer that like if somebody <laughs> say your podcasts are so interesting like i could see this being turned into a movie one day what do you think <laughs> if you say yes you're a dick if you say no you're being disingenuous <laughs> Oh no! Um, like, ah, so you mean so? Yes. So the I'd genuine love, answer is yes. Of course, you would love to. Of course, because yeah. I mean, the it would be such an amazing story. Like the things without, and I'm really not being arrogant. The things I've seen and heard um, are like ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, I certainly wouldn't pursue something like that. I wouldn't go actively looking for that um, that opportunity. No, let things happen as they. I think it's possible, though. It's possible to do something that it that you do because it's worth doing because it, it spreads the message more because you're writing a book and it's a good process. And if also like cool things come from that, if also money comes from that, well, who cares? Like that's you know you can do what you want. You can give all that money to charity if it makes you feel better, but it's still the the process of writing it and getting it out there uh, mm. would would really be something. Yeah, do you know? I thought when I got back. I started writing when I got back last year, past last May, I got back and I was like, I have to start writing because this is insane and I will forget all of it if I don't. And I did. And I started thinking, could, could I potentially, could this potentially be a book? And I was just like, I can't be, do you know how long it takes to write a book? <laughs> I'm writing one now. No, you're not. <laughs> a fiction yeah, or hell. that is insane. What's it about? It's Can a, you say a non-fiction? Yeah, it's a not. Well, I don't. I think con- contractually, I don't have a clue. But they won't mind. Uh, I hope uh, about the psychology of secrets. So it's a lot of uh, the stories of people I've spoken to uh, who, because they've all kept secrets, and what secrets has done to them all differently, and what the sort of psychology behind all that is. Very, very cool, and very, very deep. It sounds super oh, intense. How are you finding the time? To sort of suddenly turn um, to me being the interviewer. Yeah. Well, no, please do. I love being asked questions. Um, <laughs> I've got, that's my ego. <laughs> well, I doubt you it's, ever are, given your job, right? I don't know. Are you asked? Are you asked enough questions, Andrew? No. I remember. I can't remember who it was now. I wish I could, but I remember somebody saying one time once we'd started recording, and I'd asked them something, and they asked me something back, and it was just like, "How are you doing?" And I, it suddenly, yeah. oh. Oh, thank you. Sorry, not, yeah. not that people are expected to do that, but I, I go on other people's podcasts, and that's the deal. You know, sometimes I'll go on theirs, and they'll come on mine, and it's so funny how naturally the, it changes from like, you know, I'm the inquisitor now, so I will hardly speak, and I'll just prod now, and then as soon as I'm on theirs, that role reversal happens. Yeah, that's just that's the job. Wow. Um, okay, when is this book? Plug yourself. When is this book being <laughs> being released? It's. I'm hopefully finishing it by next May or June or something, and then I think it takes another sort of six, seven, eight months to uh, to, to for them to publish it or whatever. It's frustratingly slow actually because I want to just get it done. At the same time, in terms of finding the time, yeah, it's impossible. Like I've not written a word for about six weeks now, and I'm just waiting for that moment where it's like, okay, I've got some time, and like it's not just the time. You need to be in a really specific mood, don't you? To, Absolutely. To sit down and write. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, I know we're digressing. I wrote a, a tried to write a sitcom. Um, I just took it upon myself to, I had this idea and I had to, I was living in, I was living in Shoreditch at the time in Hoxton. And the, I found the only place that I could, <laughs> I could write was this little, uh, Starbucks, a Starbucks. In fact, wasn't that little Starbucks outside Ealing tube. And I would travel. It was the only place that I found that I could actually be creative. It was really weird and really annoying and really expensive because <laughs> I couldn't write at home. <laughs> I 
well, it was just coffee. I was constantly high. Um, so yeah, feel your pain. So for that reason, no, I'm not about that. I'll write something for myself. I think you could see how it goes because I, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be like, I, I, you know what? You, you've got to do you. What am I, what am I giving you, telling you what to do? <laughs> you've got to do you. I'm, I just think of one of my favorite ever movies was The Constant Gardener. It's a very different film. Is that with Ralph Fiennes? Yeah, I love that. I love that man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's amazing. <laughs> like Voldemort. I've got like a man is... crush on him. <laughs> Why yeah, not? Voldemort. He's amazing. I'm a massive Harry Potter fan. Massive. Me too. Are you? Me too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've read them all in like uh, different languages. I, that was what I, what I had to learn different languages. I read Harry Potter in five languages. Do, what do you speak? French, Spanish, German, Portuguese, and, and English. Oh my God, you're amazing. How? Yeah, this is are about me. Those... This is all about me. This is great. I'd ra- this is insane. Are you? Can I just last question? Are your family mm. Italian? What, how, how? Why do you? Why no, are you no, so? No, no. So you just took it upon yourself to just learn five languages. Well, in my twenty, <laughs> I've paid Annie to ask these questions. In my twenties, I um, lived in Argentina for like six years in Colombia, and then I lived in um, um, uh, where else? Like Brazil and uh, Germany for some time, just because. And I love Harry Potter, so I wanted to use Harry Potter to learn the languages. You're but I also I wanted to be sort of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am a show off. You have to, don't you? What's the point in yes. learning five languages if you can't show off about Absolutely. it during an episode about very sad other things? Yeah. But you know it. It's, I wanted to be the sort of the next Louis Theroux, right? And I thought, what can I do that Louis Theroux can't? And I thought, oh, I can actually, if I go and learn these languages in my 20s, then I'll have that. And that's what he doesn't have. You're incredible. How's that working out for you? But it didn't work out. No, okay. Yeah, right. Well, there's time. Well. Well, I've got, did you see my film about exorcism? Uh, I did. Uh, half of it. Sorry, I didn't watch okay. it all. Just the, um, just the good half. It's a bit triggering. <laughs> just a bit triggering, the first half. Um, I find all of that stuff. Do you know... I used to ask my dad when I was younger to tell me all about, I love this stuff. And um, I like being scared, especially as a child. Um, But now it actually terrifies me. (laughs) And I think it's probably because of the work that I've done. And I wholeheartedly believe in that stuff. Um, So I, yeah, I just can't go meddling with it. Or even watching that stuff. Well, there's also, I mean, people... As you get older, I'm sure listeners will relate to this. You know, you you probably used to, if you flew on a plane when you were a child, you probably didn't care that much. And then when you get older, you start to get a bit scared. Uh, 100%. Just everything scares you a bit more as you get older because you realise what could happen. You know? Yeah, it's true. I'm not as gutsy and ballsy as I was. Um, so much so that this trip that I keep sort of bragging about next month to Uganda, I'm umming and ahhing because there's been an outbreak of Ebola. <laughs> so like three years ago, I'd have just been like, give a shit. Like, I'm, I'm going, but I'm like, should, should I? <laughs> should I? It's not reached to Kampala yet. So I think we'll probably be, probably be all right. But yeah, this sense of kind of, uh, don't know i'm not gonna live forever <laughs> you know i'm not <laughs> it's scary i think it's i think it's um it's clearly to do with age getting older and, and what you've seen and what you hope to be able to do in the years to come <laughs> and i don't want anything to sort of stop that <laughs> so i think there's this yeah how old are you if you don't mind me asking 33 how old are you i'm 37 and a half uh, you look younger liar <laughs> <laughs> no you do you do well i don't know I, you know i've got that thing where i assume that everybody's the same age as me do you know do you know what i mean well do you know what? there's something nice about doing these sorts of podcasts because th- there's like a, a, a sort of a natural instant automatic filter so it just sort of airbrushes you completely out so there are no lines or anything like that 
fantastic. You're yeah. particularly pixelated. No, it is good. It is good. That's why people probably don't realize how ugly I am. But on the video, I look all right. It's all, it's all um, you know, you can't see all the marks and things. Right, we better get back on to the topic at hand. You know what you, you, know what you were just saying um, about... The, I think the reason that you... you I've done some podcasts before about why we like scary things... Um, and a lot of it is apparently to do with our evolutionary psychology that if you watch horrible things happening, horrible, horrible, horrible things, uh, it might help you to practice and to know what to avoid yourself. You know, you see someone getting eaten or killed in the wild or whatever. By watching it, it gives you dopamine in your brain or something. Uh, it makes you want to watch it. And then you know how to avoid that. It's that kind of thing. And that's probably why um, we like public executions and public hangings and stuff back in the day. Do you think there's 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 anything to to that in the child sacrifice? I mean, is there a, is there ever like a, a group of witnesses watching? Uh, what do you mean? Sort of okay. Is it a spectator? Like a public thing? Yeah, uh, absolutely not. No. Okay. No, no, no. This no. is this is completely very private hidden. and yeah, yeah, absolutely secretive and uh, secluded and yeah, behind walls. <laughs> Or within bushes, yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. Do you think it it might also just speak to humans? I mean, what does it say to you about humans? Are we are we naturally violent? Are we suppressing our violence and then using excuses sometimes to be violent? I don't think it's as deep as that. If I'm honest, I think that this is a business. I think that uh, there are those who are not just in Uganda, but. Um, various different countries in, in, in Africa and in India too, who have realized that there is big, big money in convincing people that sacrificing a child will make them rich. Um, especially in Uganda, it's big business. So I don't really think it's a case of, you know, going back to sort of human, you know, um, these sort of barbaric, um, it's not a case. I don't, I think it's bigger than violence. I don't. I don't think that that's as um, prominent in this situation as really unscrupulous, um, evil people realizing that they can capitalize of people's desperation. And where, so the money. Where where is the money in in all of this? Because obviously we've got uh, what's happening is you know because for prosperity and luck and things. So where does the, what's the what's with the money here? So obviously. A witch doctor is paid um, for their services, and the ultimate, um, you know, one of the most expensive things to ask a witch doctor to do or provide for you is uh, the sacrifice of a child. Uh, so <clears throat> this can cost anywhere from about two hundred pounds, which isn't very much to us but is a huge amount to a particular witch doctor and can write, you know, rise to thousands and thousands. Um, so children are murdered for money. And, you know, it's not just the witch doctor who are paid. Obviously, it's the, it's the person who abducts the child. It's the um, person who goes out to buy the utensils to cut the child. There's, it's such a network. Um, you've got the driver. You've got the person who obtains the phones. Um, to make, you know, to, to communicate with those involved. Um, so 
so yes, it's a, it's a very, very profitable business. Is it like a, a mafia? And, and are there famous witch doctors? I, I suppose because it's so illegal, they've got to hide, I guess. There are, but the, you've got to be quite careful when you kind of... There are witch doctors and traditional healers, right? Um, witch doctors are those who are carrying out um, witchcraft and appeasing ancestral spirits. Not necessarily... Um, not necessarily carrying out ch uh, child sacrifice, but it's the witch doctors who are carrying out child sacrifice, amongst other things. And then you've got traditional healers who are, you know, medicine men and women, um, and they use traditional herbs to cure ailments and illnesses, and they're very reputable. Um, so sometimes, you know, that those lines are blurred, and the traditional healers, especially in Uganda, get a really bad name for themselves because of the reputation of witch doctors who are carrying out these, you know, hideous, hideous acts. And, and, and then was this when you got there, was this legal? No. So it's always been illegal to sacrifice a child, murder a child. But the, the issue was that like defendants were being charged using the penal code, um, which did not um, carry an adequate sentence, in my opinion. Um, and there were significant loopholes in not just the Penal Code, but the um, Anti-Trafficking in Persons Act um, that made it really, really easy for people who are carrying out this crime to be let off. For example, um, you know, if there was a case of a child who was kept in a shrine and she was uh, graduate she was gradually sacrificed and um, instead of just, you know, removing her body parts and leaving her to die, she was born for the purpose of sacrifice. So over the what? years, she was, you know, they would remove a fingernail, it would grow back and <gasps> they'd remove it again. They'd remove her earlobes, teeth, um, pull out hair. By the time I met her, she couldn't hear, she couldn't see, she couldn't speak. She was in a wheelchair. It's awful. Um, so the guys who, who did that to her were charged with kidnap, kidnap and torture, and were given a ridiculously low sentence. So our law um, has that provision uh, of gradual sacrifice, um, and it carries a, a, a really, really high sentence. So we have thought of every single possible scenario that, in, that is involved in sacrificing a child from the moment that call is made to the, the murder of that child. And every single stage has a crime attached to it. We have spent so long thinking and thinking and thinking of every possible scenario to make sure that there aren't any loopholes anymore. Yeah. So what kind of things were they like? So now placing a call, that is a crime that will get you a sentence, placing a call to a witch doctor about child sacrifice. Yes. Um, and it's obviously at the judge's discretion. Um, but I know that the the law has been used a few times now, which I'm insanely proud of. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. One of them, I think I briefly mentioned about this little boy who survived and he could he could identify his attackers earlier. Um, I mentioned there, was, there were some cases of, of that happening. And this little boy, finally, um, his perpetrators were caught. And they were sentenced, so I think it was 44 years, which I know doesn't sound very much, but we will we will appeal that. <laughs> he ain't getting out. Um, but he had been, this poor, poor little boy has been living with 
they removed his penis, they castrated him and um, tried to cut his cut his um, head off. So he's got this huge scar here. Um, and yeah, he is, he went to Australia for surgery um, funded by a charity and they just, yeah, they did what they could. Um, but he was living in the same community as the man who, who attacked him. And he couldn't do anything because at the time, a child's eyewitness account was not enough to secure a conviction. Um, so this guy's now behind bars and I am really thrilled to see that he, this boy has justice um, and that this bill, this law, I've got to get used to calling it law, is being used in the way that it was designed to. I'm insanely proud of it. I'm amazed. I am. And I, I you know, I want to, Oh, I don't want to compliment you too much. Cause I don't think you, you don't want it. But I just I, I I'm amazed by what you've done. I really am. Um, ah, it's it's funny how that's come about as well because that, you know the the Puritans with the witches that was that was the problem was children's eyewitness accounts was putting people into prison. But this is a completely different spin on it. It's like you, this is a really really good thing. It's a very good thing. Um, and I have to say, it's, it really is not just me who has uh, pushed this through at all. Um, after a few years, um, I got funding from an incredible UK-based charity called Children on the Edge. Um, and without their help, I certainly wouldn't have been able to, to you know, consider being anywhere near here <laughs> like they they resourced they helped finance this they did finance it sorry um offered emotional support everything it was just it, it would it's impossible to imagine having done this without them so and also my team in uganda as well so this is not this is not just me i want to make that really really clear <laughs> yeah um and yeah i couldn't think about it it would be impossible to try and take off take on um a mountain like that you needed I needed help and help I had. What were some of the challenges you faced in trying to uh, change this law? Um, so we didn't change it. We introduced a specific law. Um, and the challenges were just that, actually. That was one of the main ones that, you know, we came up against so much sort of criticism, like we don't need a, we don't need a new law. We've got the Anti-Trafficking Persons Act. We've got the Penal Code. This is... This is perfectly adequate. No, <laughs> they really aren't, which is why people are getting off left, right and center. Um, financing. I financed it myself for the first three years. So I was working in London, save up money, come back to Uganda and mobilize MPs. I was very whimsical with the way that I was going about it. Um, not particularly methodical, right? But I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but it became very, very clear that I needed funding and I contacted Children on the Edge and Rachel Bentley, the one of the founders, um, just took took a chance on me. Um, and I'm forever, forever grateful for their support. So money was a big one. I think, um, you know, often like maintaining that sort of momentum <laughs> Um, because seven years is no joke. You know, it, it was very much like that. Um, and often I just I thought, what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> I want to go back to London and party <laughs> and just, just do nothing, do nothing. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a whole heap of nothing and just forget that this had happened. Cause actually I remember feeling like this is a bloody curse. 
because like in the midst of it, you can't walk away once you know something like that's happening. So I felt totally anchored to this. You were stuck. You were you were stuck to it. But then you got the bill passed with two minutes to spare. Yes. Uh, not two minutes. <laughs> not two <laughs> minutes. Uh, two days. Uh, two days okay. to spare. Yeah. Um, so the Ugandan Parliament was reaching. Uh, there was going to be a new Parliament basically, and. Um, the end of the 10th parliament was ending on the Friday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, three days to spare. And yeah, we presented on the Tuesday. Um, astonishingly, um, somehow were able to get a slot because we were actually told previously it wasn't going to happen. And I got a call, um, in the morning from uh, my colleague in parliament. It was like, we're presenting this bill <laughs> uh, at 10 o'clock. <laughs> And it was like 9 a.m. And uh, I rushed like a bat out of hell um, to Parliament in a really, really, really inappropriate jumpsuit. Um, and I jumped, I jumped on the back of a Boda Boda, which is a motorcycle taxi. And uh, yeah, told the guy to just, just get there, get there as soon as possible. Got to Parliament and uh, met the MP who was presenting the bill. And he was like, we, you you can't enter parliament like that. <laughs> you can't. Like you look, I was like, no, 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 no. This can't happen. I can't not see this happen and pass or fail. Um, I just, I just couldn't let that happen. And somehow I managed to get a friend to bother, bother me some clothes. And, um, I changed in one of the offices and yeah, I was able to, to, to watch it. That would have literally, that would have broken my heart if I wasn't able to, to watch that all because of a fashion faux pas. I would, could you imagine living that down? <laughs> it would have been ridiculous. These kinds of things. <laughs> but I so should have, mad. no, but I've been in and out of parliament for a long, like I should have known that, you know, some spotty hipster kind of, no, it wasn't, it wasn't appropriate. Um, but yeah, no, I remember the moment it passed. It was just, it was just something that I will gladly hold on to forever. It was a very, very long process it was raining and because of covid it was in this um like outdoor tent and there were mosquitoes everywhere um and it just went on for something like two and a half hours because there was going through loads of other bills and finally it got to hours and there was like a moment where they were disputing one of the clauses and i was like oh god it's not gonna happen and then uh yeah finally finally it did did you feel emotional in the moment that it passed yeah, yeah, embarrassingly so. Um, you know, Ugandans are really conservative. Um, but <laughs> so emotion and tears and all of that just doesn't really fly, not in a professional setting. And, um, the Ugand, the, the, the colleague in parliament who had rang me in the morning had been there from day one. In fact, he was a legislator who offered to help me for free. And so he was sitting to my left and, um, and he'd never seen me break, for, for, you know, break down like that. And it was him who sort of turned to me and said it had passed. Um, and oh gosh, I get emotional thinking about that because, you know, we sort of started it together and we ended it together. And yeah, it was just a really, really special moment. Well, you saved a lot of lives. I mean, you, you did more in that moment or in those years than most of us do with our lives. I don't really know how to, what to say to that. I'm just glad it's being used, you know, like it, 
there was a moment maybe like six months ago where um implementation is a really big part of of um of this like uganda is got lots of laws but unless they're really implemented they don't really do anything and there was a moment a while back that I was like this is just not being used this bill like <laughs> have we done all of this for nothing um and then slowly and surely it started started getting used like the case that I've just told you about so yeah I had a new kind of, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry I always I try and cut in you go no, I, I'm sick of talking now <laughs> I wish I, I want to break the, the, the thing the thing about doing this on on online is I always have to try and anticipate when someone's about to finish. So because of just the put your delay, hand up, just put your hand but, up and but I'll stop. Not, but but I don't want you to stop. It's only I only want you to stop if you've actually finished. But I always have to interpret that, that it looks it. like they may be finished. But if they are going to just leave a gap and then they've got more to say, I'm I don't want to stop it. Right, I'll put my hand up when I'm finishing. Right, like about two or three words before the end of a sentence. Will that help oh, you out? Yeah, it might look it might look weird though on YouTube. It, That's it the might. Thing. You always put, put your hand up. Do you think this will um, stop more of ch- child sacrifice through prevention? You know, people know that there's going to be a, a, a higher sentence, or or maybe locking up the offenders so there are fewer of them, fewer of them at large. Mm, I think it will do. It depends. It depends how what the future of this law is really, and if it's con- if it continues to be used in the way that it's being used, I think that it will undoubtedly work as a deterrent. But um, I don't think it will do much more than that. Um, I think I think what's really really important is this stage two, which is what I'm doing now, um, is working on implementation, training up the judiciary so that they know exactly how to use this law. Um, working at the grassroots level to try and convince and educate communities without sounding really wanky and condescending that this is not, this is not the way to go and that there are other ways in which to prosper. Um, they have to work in conjunction. And I genuinely, I feel as though I picked the easy one of the two. Passing a law is like, you know, but convincing, you know, a community where, you know, within the f- whole fabrics of their being is that, you know, you have to appease the ancestral spirits in order to X, Y, and Z. It's going to be really, really hard um, and probably won't be achieved in my lifetime. Um, but they have to work in conjunction. The bill alone will do very, very little, um, I'm afraid to say. It will do some, and the sum is more than enough um, for me. But um, I just I just feel like while I've got the energy and the means and the momentum, I'd just like to continue in this field. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.
There's a weirdness. Do you ever do you ever cross your just so people listening know Annie put her hand up to say she finished. Um there's a there's a weird thing here where it is a case of like wealthier Western people going over I mean you mentioned educate which I was going to ask you next how do we educate people not to do it but it's just occurred to me there is that thing of like us going over and we're going to educate you on how to be at the same time the thing that's happening by our standards just seems so abhorrent that it seems crazy not to try and do that right yeah um yes I think it helps that I'm not white um I don't I think I'd have a hard uh, time I'm still called Mzungu over there which is white person because I'm fairer than them um most people um so I still get a tough time in fact I'm probably I'm probably seen as white if I am but I think they wouldn't admit it but I think that they're more susceptible to maybe listening to some of my ideas than they might do if maybe you went sure. over you know sure. so there's i've got that up my sleeve but that's about it <laughs> that is about is it. it weird is it weird feeling white there yeah i don't like it no offense <laughs> i don't because i'm not it's taking away my blackness like and my identity so yeah it's not nice it's annoying but i got used to it but to be called mzungu all the time right which is you white person <laughs> it's just like come on I learned the word for mixed race, but, um, and we just, um, would, would shout it back, but, um, Muchutala, that's it, Muchutala. Uh, but it just didn't really stick. Yeah. I got caught when I was in Argentina, South America, I was gringo, obviously, all the time. Oh, yeah, gringo yeah. this, gringo that. Yeah. Which, which it was annoying again because that's an American. That's supposed to yeah. be an American. I had to, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not them. I'm not, I'm not Yankee, as they would say, you know. No. Um, um, and, and then, uh, oh, yeah, go on. What were you going to no, say? No, no, I wasn't actually. I was just filling the silence. Are there still, <laughs> are there still places in other parts of Africa or other parts of the world uh, that you know of where this goes on? Yes, uh, Botswana, uh, Nigeria, parts of Ghana, um, uh, 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 and India is specific, like particularly bad. There was a there was a moment last year where went during I felt really galvanized and <clears throat> there's an organization who helped us kind of helped inform us um, when it came to the bill and writing legislation because in legislation what legislators borrow from other existing laws to create their own provisions it's above board it sounds really kind of cagey like they're play, plagiarizing they're not and we borrowed a lot from the existing laws in India that outlaw this practice. And um, <clears throat> I got talking to a, a charity over there who are really keen to introduce specific legislation on this. And uh, I just learned how, I mean, I thought Uganda was bad, but um, India has, has a real serious problem. Um, not all over, and don't ask me where, I can't quite remember, but um, I thought perhaps I could then sort of take the, you know, Law and the team that I'd worked with over there, and and start helping them. But I I don't have the time. I don't have the time. No, I can't. Thought it's too much for one person. It is. Yeah, I feel bad saying that. <laughs> what was the um? I I forgot to ask you about the boy who was lured to buy soap by his uncle. Yeah. What about him? What was his story? So the two twin boys, um, brothers who, uh, were at home one day, and their uncle asked them to come to the shop with him and told them that he 
that they were offed by soap and he took them into the bush and uh, sat one of them down and sacrificed the other one in front of his brother. Uh, he cut off his head and removed his genitals um, and his, yeah, was just left, 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 left to die um, while his brother watched on completely helpless. Um, and that, that is, I mean, that happens all the time, by the way. Um, it's not, it's not uncommon. It's horrible. However, not uncommon, uncommon. The issue with, one of the many issues with this is that the whip, the, the uncle was found by the mob justice before the police could really get, get to him and he was burnt alive and they took it into their own hands to, to deal with him as they saw fit. Um, yeah, his brother, so the boy is now 12 and he's doing very well. He's, um, he's in school. I spoke to him literally a couple of weeks ago. Um, so he's got the support around him. I think that he needs, um, and he's doing all things considered well, I think. That's amazing to hear. And, but, but hor horrific what he went through and horrible. Um, and I guess that's, you know, a, a place to sort of come to an end and, and ask, like, is there much that listeners can, can do to help or, or to find out more, you know? Mm, that is a good question. Do you know what? There's not enough out there on, when I was trying to research this, um, the first article I put in Child Sacrifice, Uganda, and there was this, you know, the first article I read was this Daily Mail, um, horrible, mm. sensational, no offense to Daily Mail listeners or, you know, mm. workers, <laughs> but it just was <laughs> completely inaccurate. It was just awful. So many holes. There's not enough information out there, which I am working on. Um, but I think there's, there's always funding that needs to be, I don't want to ask for money. Um, I'm not going to do that. Um, but if, if you would like to help, um, we, I am, you know, introducing this second phase where <clears throat> implementation is so important. I have set up a GoFundMe page, um, which I, I cannot believe, um, has, done so well. Every day I seem to get a little, um, uh, a donation. And I think it's unbelievable. There's no pressure whatsoever to donate. Do if you want, don't worry if you don't, but there's that. Um, and I think I'm just working on a way to make this information accessible to people, not just through the means of podcasts. And just because I think it's really important that people know what's going on in their world. Well, I am going to pressure people to give their money to you, to contribute to that your GoFundMe. Nice. Thank but you. That's me doing it. Everyone, yeah, do go check. What Just Annie Iqba, um GoFundMe? I don't know. I think so. I can't. Uh, <laughs> the Children on the Edge set it up. Um, this is how I, I just... I don't know. Can I tell you? Could you link to it, maybe? Yeah. I mean, anyone who does, it's wonderful of you. I mean, typically, a lot of listeners buy uh, uh, the book of of one of my guests. You know, so I think if they spent the equivalent on on paying towards this, and this is paying towards helping you go out and you know um, change things out there and hopefully save some lives. So, uh, um, Annie, thank you for being on the edge. What a fantastic guest you've been. Thank you. Ah, uh, it's been really, really good. I think. Thank you for giving um, me the platform to talk about something that's really important to me and that should be should be spoken about way more often thank you
Thank you, Addy, so much for your patience and kindness during our recording. And I think I thank her on behalf of all humanity for her determination in bringing about change in a place where child sacrifice was rife. Remember to find out more about her work on Children on the Edge, a pure coincidence, the title of that being close to that of this podcast, and check out her video on Lad Bible about bringing about a change in the law around child sacrifice. That's all for now. Coming up are episodes with a psychopath, a former evangelist, and Robbie Williams Part 2. See you soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing. <laughs> Works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.